Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello there, Stephen here. As some of you know, Tent Theology is not just a podcast, it's also a business. From time to time, I get hired by charities or businesses or churches to act as a sort of theological consultant helping organizations think Christianly about what they do. One such organization is St. John's Church in London. The vicar, John, hired me a few months ago to help his church think through the Sermon on the Mount. We met every week over Zoom, and they were kind enough to release the recordings for this podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing this and get as much out of it as we did making it. Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be doing this over the next few weeks. Our vision for Dig Deeper is that we get to dig deeper into the passage that we looked at the previous Sunday. And as we journey through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we are here to do. And to help us do that, we have Dr. Stephen Backhouse. Stephen, it's great to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you again, John. It's good to be back into the swing of Dig Deeper. We're back. Stephen, how have you been? I've been good. I've been resisting the, the lure of going back to normal life. I like my shed. I like my back garden. I don't want to go back into normal life. So <laughs> I'm doing anything I can to stay on a mic behind closed doors. So, Stephen, while you've been gone, we have journeyed through Ruth just after Easter. Yeah. And then we went into Nehemiah. And um, looking at what it looks like for us to rebuild our lives. That's what we've been covering over the last three weeks. Okay. Um, just a kind of helicopter bird's eye view of Nehemiah about what it looks like for us to rebuild our lives. Okay. Taking the lead from Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls and, and so on. So a lot of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks has been the whole theme of rebuilding. And, and we went through Mark's Gospel with the design of what it looks like for us to reset our lives. Right. And reshape our lives in terms of following Jesus. That's the reason we went through Mark's gospel. Ended neatly with Easter, and um, and now we're looking from the reset to the rebuild, and um, we're going to take our lead from the Sermon on the Mount for the next few weeks. Yeah, I'm glad. I like this. I. It's surprising how how little a lot of times people spend with the Sermon on the Mount. It kind of familiarity breeds contempt, and they think that they know it because they know a couple of verses from it or something, but they don't really think of it as the, the kind of um, compendium of what it felt like to be around Jesus that it is. So I'm glad we're right. doing this. And, yeah. and, and many of these passages will be familiar in isolation. Right, yeah. And I think those kind of soundbite passages, you know, that actually we pick up the Lord's Prayer or we pick up the... Um, you know, the rules around fasting, or we pick up the love your enemies or whatever we pick up, yeah. but we don't see it as one holistic text. And, and before no. we get into our passage uh, today, can you give us kind of a headline of, of what people believe this uh, Sermon on the Mount, how it was brought together? Was it one sermon most people believe, or was it um, a, a redacted collection of Jesus' teachings? Can you give us a sense yeah, of right. how we understand the whole? Okay, so... 
uh, for me, I, I, I think I call it, it, it's the rule of life for the people of God, right? It's a, it's a manifesto for people who are being formed, who are identifying with being part of the kingdom of God now. We'll talk about that a bit later, about the crowds of people that are where Jesus is, who he's actually talking to, which is important for this sermon. But it's the rule of life for the people of God. And it's it's a new rule of life. So it's it's people who are being drawn from other rules of life, like traditional Hebrew rules or Gentiles are in this group as well. And it's like Jesus is replacing their old rules of life with a new one. And it's the Sermon on the Mount is like an encapsulation of what that was. And that's what it's being presented as. So Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount appears in its in what we're looking at in Matthew. Luke has one that's sl slightly similar. Um, and it, but in Matthew, he's presenting Jesus as a new Moses, just like Moses presents the Ten Commandments and the law. He has Jesus presenting the Sermon on the Mount. So it's you got to kind of think of it in that way. Well, of course, because Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. Yeah, they're Jewish, but also Gentiles who are now joining a Jewish group. Okay. Right. So it's it's not 100% Jewish. Like, and we're, you'll even see this. There are definitely Gentiles being mentioned in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, so it's like he's cobbled together a new group of people from different backgrounds, and they are now being joined together under one rule. And this is what their rule looks like. The idea that Jesus, like, did he stand up and just speak the Sermon on the Mount word for word like we have it in Matthew? Probably not. It looks more like it's the kinds of things he said as he traveled around. He probably said it in lots of different places. So that's why we have a, a different version in Luke. And we have some sayings that show up in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount that show up in other places in other Gospels. So it's like Jesus said all these things. And what Matthew's done is he's put them all together. And sometimes they're thematically linked and we'll look at that there are some times when people aren't quite sure like is this meant to be a teaching on uh forgiveness or is it meant to be a teaching on on money we're not quite sure so it uh, it has been described sometimes as like pearls on a string so it is a pearl necklace it's lovely but it's also individual little pearls as well and sometimes we're not quite sure uh the connection between the different pearls but we know that altogether they form a necklace <laughs> well that, that makes sense, sense from yeah. what you're saying this idea that it's a collection of teachings because yeah obviously the, the author is someone that would, would have heard them and like any itinerant speaker they've got a core message yeah they they will you know the idea that jesus didn't say these things repeatedly is kind of unrealistic yeah he's going to different communities exactly. they yeah. he wants them yeah. to hear the same message yeah, yeah. and i mean realistically the sermon on the mount takes you can read it in about 14 minutes i've recorded it before and i think it takes about 14 minutes to read okay. uh jesus's ministry and all that he said cannot be summed up in 14 minutes like he said more than 14 minutes worth of teaching right yeah yeah this is clearly like an edited encapsulated condensed version of hey guys here it is here's the 10 commandments for the christian movement as it were, uh, but all of life, obviously you can dwell on the 10 commandments for a lot longer than just the time it takes to read them. Likewise, the Sermon on the Mount is like, here's the kind of, here's the uh, black current cordial, but you need to add your fizzy water to make it really work. <laughs> here's the concentrated Jesus words. And now the rest of the New Testament is an expanding on it. By the way, so the book of James is, is, has lots of comments on the new to, on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Okay. So that's an interesting connection. The book of Romans almost side by side would be. Yeah. Right. So, so James will be quoting the Sermon on the Mount and he'll be kind of, you get a new, a window an insight into what it was like for the early church to try and put this stuff into practice. And you see it happen in James and also uh, Paul in the book of Romans quotes the Sermon on the Mount quite a lot. Okay. Uh, interestingly, around Romans 12 and Romans 13, when we talk about submission to ruling authorities and how you're supposed to deal with violence and oppression. How, yeah. and, it, and Romans 12 and Romans 13 has a lot of like the people of God's vision for what they think they're doing. What happens when it comes up against other types of kingdoms who have a different vision? So that's it really highlights that kind of um, uh, I would call it the political aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, which is about forming a group of people. And they're living it out in the real world, yeah. but they are going to clash against other people who are living different rules of life. Yeah. And you can see that being worked out in the New Testament itself. Yeah. And so that it's quite nice to see that kind of sense of going from concept to reality that I know Jesus isn't speaking conceptual terms or kind of no. highfalutin. So he's speaking very much in reality. But yeah, but to see James and Paul working that out in their context. And, and, and there's an immediate, I know we're not starting with the Beatitudes, but there, but if you, but the way the sermon does start is with the Beatitudes and they are, it's an immediate thing. He's not saying, it's not kind of theoretical. He's not stroking his beard and sitting in an academic classroom. He's looking at the people right in front of him and he's saying, you right now are blessed right now because of the way you're acting or because of how society sees you. Yeah. And so he's, there's a real world um, assumption right from the start. It's so, not um, theory, it's practice right from the start. So let's talk about the audience. Who's he speaking to? I know you said a variety of audiences. This is kind of thing he would have spoken in a variety of contexts. But yeah. Is it likely to be quite homogenous crowds? Is, is it, you know, regardless of where he was, it was a similar makeup of people? Well, we're actually told. I mean, I, I know you didn't want to start with this, but I, when I'm teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, so the Sermon on the Mount is chapters five, six, and seven, right? Yeah, of Matthew's Gospel. Of Matthew's Gospel. But of course... Matthew didn't write with a little chapters and verses, right? You know, I like my trick is to always just read yeah. the whole thing or look further back as if there was no chapter break. Yeah. And in chapter four, Matthew chapter four, you are told very explicitly who the people are that are crowding around Jesus. Okay. So, um, but like, for example, I, I always like to start, I don't know how much time you got on here, but look at Matthew, the beginning of Matthew four, where it's, it starts with Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah. And the wilderness is like a place away from power. And we talked about this with the Mark study. And the temptations are all about kingship. So so Satan is tempting Jesus to turn bread to sto uh, stones to bread to feed his people because that's a mark of a true king. Yeah. He tempts him about throwing yourself off the temple so the temple was this public space and sign of authority and Jesus is meant to show his authority over the temple. And then if you Satan says, if you bow to me, all the nations will be yours, which is an obvious um, temptation towards power. And the idea here is that Jesus is being tempted to take shortcuts to get what is already rightfully his. Yeah. And so then, so that story begins with the, it's all about power and how we use it and how we, what kind of movement is Jesus going to lead? And he yeah. resists the Satan. And then he goes off and he starts beginning his ministry, right? Yeah. And you go look at Matthew 4, sort of verse 12 onwards, and you just get a list of all sorts of place names and the kinds of places that Jesus is going. Yeah. And it's 
Galilee and it's Nazareth and it's the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then Matthew says, and this was to fulfill what was said in Isaiah, the prophet, that I'm going to the Galilee of the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are going to be preached to. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And on them a light has dawned, right? So Jesus preaching to all these different, and all these cities and places he's going to, they are a combination of Roman occupied territories, Jewish territories, Gentile territories. And Matthew is like, yeah, this is what they prophesied. Jesus, he resists a Satan's form of power. And instead he goes and he starts collecting a ragtag group of people who don't really fit together. And uh, Jesus, after that is when he says, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your ways. Like, and repent means not secret, not repent of your secret sins, but like change your ways. Come out of the old habits of life and join a new habit of life. And it's called the kingdom of God. And here it is. It's with me. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes and he, you'll see that he calls um, Simon and Andrew. And he turns their job from fishermen. He says, you're, go- you're now going to be fishers of men. So he gives them a new job description. Then they go to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And Matthew tells us very plainly that they immediately, they leave their boat and their father and follow him. Verse 22. So we've got Jesus is pulling people from different regions. They don't really belong together, but he's putting them together in one place. He's changing people's socioeconomic positions. He's changing their family relations, right? He's giving people new identities. And then he goes through all Galilee and he's teaching in synagogues, which is Jewish. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. and He's healing everyone. And then his fame spreads even beyond Jewish regions. And it's in Syria. Yeah. And he's healing everybody. And all these people are coming to him. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. The Decapolis is the Roman occupied Gentile region and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So all manner of people are following him. Matthew says they're great crowds. And then on seeing the crowds, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he begins to teach. So the crowds we are explicitly told are from all these different groups of people. Jesus sees the crowds and like Moses, he goes up on the mountain and he delivers the law. And then we start the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we are going to start at the end. Yeah, right. We looked looked at uh, the reset of Mark's gospel. uh, And as as Stephen, you just said, that whole idea that, that they're being called to resist the powers that they've been caught up in. Yeah. and start a new way of living and it's like now that you've done that through mark's gospel this is how you are to live in yeah. yeah so you know you've had the why and now you've got the how yeah and um so we're going to start at the end uh because that's good I, I don't like to do things normal way so we decided to preach a bit differently through the sermon on the mount this time uh because we wanted to link our series in nehemiah which is all about rebuilding ah yeah um, building yeah Right. There we go. So nice. now you're going to build your house on a rock. Yeah. Here we go. So we're going to uh, we're going to begin with the end of the sermon. Yeah. Uh, where Jesus makes this parallel, and I'm going to read it from uh, David Bentley Hart's uh, version, and you might want to have it out in front of you if you've got another version, and it is Matthew chapter seven, uh, from verse twenty-four to the end of the chapter. So let me read it. 
Everyone, therefore, who hears these sayings of mine, which we will have all heard if we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and enacts them, shall be likened to a prudent man who builds his house upon rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded in, and the winds blew up and fell upon that house, and it did not fall, for it had been founded upon rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not enact them shall be likened to a foolish man who built his house upon sand. And the rain descended and the rivers flooded in, the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And its fall was a great one. And it happened that when Jesus completed these sayings, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he was teaching like one possessing authority and not like their scribes. And then verse one of chapter eight, and at his descent from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good place to end it, actually. Forget that chapter break. Yeah. You start I'm, with the crowds I, and you end with the crowds. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning, Stephen. I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> So where should we start with this kind of I don't know. Have parable? You, have you done much research on this before? Like, do you have any kind of sense of what, what this is like? Well, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, the geographical context of when Jesus talks about rocks, you know, when he talks about Peter being the rock on which he'll build his church. and Right, yeah. Uh, in the background is Jerusalem perched on a rock. yeah. Right. So I, I always associate the kind of the place of Jerusalem and the kind of the cliff edge on which it's perched. That is, you know, we think of a rock maybe as a boulder or whatever, but actually yeah. the rock kind of is almost like the mountain. And the dome on the rock right now, which is right. the center right. of so much problems and yeah. conflict. Yeah. Well, and as we know in recent recent weeks, the yeah. sheer amount of conflict in that area because of the intersection of three of the Abrahamic faiths. But yeah, that's when I when I think about these this passage, I think about that the immensity of Jerusalem on a rock that actually yeah, and then of course Jerusalem, as we learned with Nehemiah, is about is not just Jerusalem the city, but it's the the rebuilding of the city enabled the place of worship to be restored, and the place yeah. of worship is the place of belonging and the place of Jewish identity. Yeah, and so when you build one's house upon a rock, yes, it has kind of domestic implications, but there is also that sense of religious and communal and corporate implications. Yeah, it's an identity. It's, it's a thing. This gives you your, your meaning and purpose in life. Yeah. This is what gives us meaning. Yeah. 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 For sure. So here we have, I mean, one of the activities in the gospels is, uh, this is partly why I, I'm always wary of like really hardcore Christian Zionists, for example, who really like fiercely identify the actual city of Jerusalem with actual revelation. Because one of the things that the Gospels is doing is it works really hard to separate that idea. That okay. actually that the, uh, the idea of the actual city, the actual literal temple is no longer the actual home of things. Jesus is saying like, you know, those things that happen in the temple, it happens with us now. Or it happens with me now or so there is a sense that he's actually deliberately trying to get you to to think differently than just thinking it's a literal city you're supposed to think like what that city stands for is changing it it, it we are doing that now it's partly when he talks about his disciples being able to forgive each other for example 
because normally the forgiveness was supposed to happen in the temple on the rock. And now he's saying, we can do that now. We can, yeah. we forgive each other now. So there's a, there is that kind of sense of like the over identification of the actual city of Jerusalem with uh, being right with God is one of the things that the gospels are working hard to, to change your mind on actually. Yeah. And this is partly what's happening here. Right. So that they, he's using that language of temples and rocks and cities. He calls them at the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're a city on a hill. Yeah. Right. You're the city on the hill, but the yeah. city on the hill was Jerusalem. <laughs> but now he's looking at, at all these dregs of society, which I've just mentioned. And he says, you're the city on the hill. Yeah. Right. So he's like taking the spotlight. He, he thinks cities on hills are good things. He says that they just don't look like what you thought they look like. Yeah. And he's, he's taking that, which is very clearly obvious. I mean, it, it's less obvious to us because we can't visually see it. But to them, I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah. you know, 2000 years ago, it was the only thing seen for miles around. Yeah. This is a prominent landmark on which he then says, take that which you can see and all your understanding that surrounds that. And, and I'm now yeah. saying that you are now that. So he, like you said, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with, with the kind of, taking that which is obvious and moving it to that which is a bit more yeah. um, intangible yeah. and, uh, and saying, well, now, now this is with you. Yeah. And he ends with saying, he ends this whole sermon by saying, listening to these teachings is about rebuilding. If you are, if you are to be this new city, this new yeah. Jerusalem, this house of worship, yeah. which as you know, Paul talks about later is that we are the temples, you know, we are the Holy Spirit. We, we have, no, we're the Holy Spirit, heresy alert. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, know, for sure. Um, and that we are the new temples. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. if you are to rebuild that, you d- you need to do so on these teachings. So very clearly that yeah. that realignment, then you've got the realignment of what it means to be the city and to be, you know, to have that as your center of gravity is saying, well, now now that's within you. You are you are the light of the world. Yeah. And then you go from that to saying, well, this is how you go about rebuilding that. This is how you go about building your life to make sure it's on firm foundations. And then there's, and then immediately following is this idea of the authority of Jesus, because he's it's just like you said, it's it's not, he's not just saying like if you follow this, your individual life will be firm. He's saying when we follow this, we are creating a new thing that that will give people identity. Yeah. We're creating a new movement, as it were, and so then people are like, wow, you're you're like Moses right now. You're like starting a new thing. Yeah a new corporate identity and they're astonished at his authority. Right. And it just strikes me just again, how quickly, just as we've been talking, how quickly I defaulted to the individual. Right. Rather than the corporate, you know, just as we were talking just yeah. then immediately, as you said, remember Jesus said that you are the city on the, I'm thinking, Oh yes, I, I am the one. You John are a city on the hill. John, yeah. I, you know, and actually the corporate nature of what it is to be the temple that yes, we are individually, temples of the holy spirit but we are also living stones of the temple you know this yeah. image of the body of christ is together each one of us has if you like that each mm-hmm. have the spirit of god living in us but we have a corporate that only means something really in the corporate mm-hmm. and when you take that to to translate that across the temple imagery we are living stones in that temple we are people that are you know, side by side on top of one another, yeah, cemented yeah. together to form this thing called the hut. And yeah. that is what is built on, on, on the rock. And again, we forget because we read it with individualistic eyes that when yeah. we, when Jesus says, build, build your house upon rock, not on sand, essentially, you know, be like the wise man, not the foolish man. 
again, we individualize it. Yeah. Oh, I must build my life and this kind of thing. And he's actually, he's talking to all of us, yeah. all, all, all the yeah. crowds. It's a crowd that's hearing it and there's a crowd implication. Well, remember the, the Beatitudes are things like mourn with those who mourn, for example. Like there's a, there's a sort of a, a mutual beneficial society going on right from the start. You're, you're joining with others. You're, you're helping each other do this stuff, basically. Yeah. You know? So it's not a, it's not a, this, I mean, you by yourself, the Sermon on the Mount is really hard to do. It's easy to understand, but it's very hard to do. And uh, it's definitely not this kind of, um, all right, John, off you, off you trot into the cold, dark world all by yourself. <laughs> go and, go and try and uh, turn the other cheek against your enemies or whatever, or give you, you can't do it. You just can't do it by yourself. It's not an individualistic rule of law. It's a, it's something that we as a group of people who agree we're following the way of Jesus are helping each other. Which is the whole, which is the whole point of Mark's gospel is that yeah. you know, the yeah. repentance was corporate. The following Jesus yeah. was corporate. It, you know, the confessing of sin was corporate. The, um, the so, responsibility to our neighbor, all of that stuff was a corporate sense. Yeah. And, but there is an individual. See, this is what's interesting. Is like I think if you think of it in terms of two muscles, uh, two arms, and one one arm is a little bit overdeveloped. So the individualistic arm is overdeveloped in our yeah. Western world. But there is an there is a personal element to this as well. So so one of the things the New Testament is doing is it's making you like it's not what goes out. It's not what comes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you. Your heart matters. Your your words matter. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is going to say this thing about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about oaths and that, that your, your honesty should not come out of outward displays, but should come from within you. So there is actually a, a heightened personal responsibility happening in the Sermon on the Mount, which I guess we could say in some ways, some Christian groups have taken that and run with it too far, as it were. They've overdeveloped the personal side of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but there is a sense of like, Here's the rule of law. This is how we all carry each other. And if we are all holding this, we will benefit each other really well. So there's, it's, it definitely isn't like somebody said, like the, my friends at Theos, the think tank, who you probably know about, they, they say, you know, following Jesus is always personal, but never private. So yeah, you do have to own it for yourself, but you will instantly start to have an effect on people around you when you do. So it's always yeah. personal, but never private. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's a really helpful way of framing it. And tell me, so Jesus is saying to us, you know, build your house upon the rock. I'm always reminded of the song in Sunday school. I don't know whether you sung it when the you were The wise man and, built his house upon the rock. House upon the rock. And the yeah. rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came yeah. down and the floods came up. Uh, but I'm always struck again to think about you know, I know what that means. It feels like I know what that means for me to build my life on the teachings of Jesus, my life. Right. What does that mean for us as a corporate? How does how do we work that out corporately? It feels very almost quite easy to say, well, I've got to turn the other cheek. And it's not easy to do. It's easy to understand. But how do we corporately, as Christians, as a local church, as a whatever a corporate yeah. might look like, how do we found ourselves on the teaching of Jesus in a corporate sense. Uh, this is going to be something we talk about many times, I think, throughout this series, by the way. <laughs> so good. It's good to have. I mean, like, like, let's think about, I, I guess you could think of it as we are the answers to 
we are the way that God answers the prayers of his people, right? So the answers to prayer are through us as well. I'm not saying we, like, do not worry about money. All right, fine. I'm not going to worry about money. But uh, where do you think all those this money comes from? Like when you need money and it's miraculously provided for you and you open your door and there's a envelope of cash on the doorstep or something. Well, that didn't just fall out of heaven. Somebody else was listening to the Holy Spirit and that person said, I want you to go give John a hundred pounds and put it on the doorstep and then do it anonymously. And that person said, okay, I'll, I'll do that Holy Spirit. And they drove over and they snuck through the hedges so that they wouldn't be seen. And they put the envelope, money in the envelope and they put it on your doorstep and they rang the bell and then they ran away. And right. Like there's a whole lot of people saying yes to God behind every one of these miracle stories. Yeah. So, so the idea is that like, do not worry about money because you will be provided for. Well, who's going to provide for you? Well, other people who are also not worrying about money. Right. And, and, and right. alongside, I mean, images like I think of cogs in a machine almost that, that in order for the machine to function, every cog has to kind of interlink and do yeah. its bit. Yeah. And yeah. so you've got the, you know, it's not saying the cog is on its own purely, but equally yeah. it's not saying that that cog has no meaning or no purpose. It does have a purpose, but it only has its purpose within the whole. Yeah. Uh, and, and so in order for one cog to move, it then moves the next cog and moves the next cog. You know, there is an interdependency, but that doesn't negate the independency of each uh, person. Yeah. You know, just like the body of Christ, you know, that image of the body of Christ is that the nerves and the synapses and the muscles and the brain all work together without having to kind of second guess each other. Because yeah. if my brain says, reach for that glass of water, there's 101 different connections and commands being worked out for, for me to be able to pick up that glass of water and bring it to my mouth. And it's that kind of image of the corporate, but also acknowledging that every individual has to play their part to make that possible. Which is the body of the body imagery that Paul will use. Right. For sure. One body, many parts. And right. um, in, in terms of some of the stuff like the Sermon on the Mount, we, we also recognize that your role's might sort of change so after the violence one is interesting the turn the other two like the idea that so the idea with the violence thing is that you're not supposed to fight and scratch and kick to get what's rightfully yours even though it's rightfully yours like you're not supposed to do that at the expense of hurting other people right and the idea is that like be willing to like have your rights trampled for a while like it's okay that's because so much of life happens the bad things happen in life when people organize themselves in order to 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 sort of project their rights into the space at the expense of other people. So part of the idea of the Sermon on the Mount people is like the ethos is, well, what would happen if you just let yourself be wronged for a while? Would that would that would be okay? Like let yourself be trampled on for a while. Now, as an individualistic rule, that is a deathly thing to say to somebody. Somebody who's being abused by the system and just go, oh, tough luck. It seems to have been, you know, you drew the short straw. Uh, here's the number to the, um, you've lost your job because you stood up for, for peace and justice or something like that. You refused to lie for your boss and you lost your job. Tough luck. Um, here's the number to the jobs bureau, you know, the uh, job center. And, uh, but that's, that's what we'll do. We're not going to help you. But then what the followers of Jesus people would do is they would go, wow, 
it was your turn to be the at the forefront of turning the other cheek at this moment. Like you didn't, you kind of let the system abuse you. So rather than you, you took a hit for the team right now, but we're the team. So we'll take yeah. care of you, right? Yeah. It's not a kind of a individualistic thing where one person is going to get crushed by the machine of, of the world. It's like, oh, right now you're the one being crushed by the world's machine. So we got to take care of you right now. Right. And then they and then they support you and bring you food every yeah. day or give you a job or whatever. And then the people of God continue to take care of each other. And then maybe the next day it will be somebody else's whose turn it is, as it were, to be at the forefront of the sharp end of, of conflict with the world. And then the people yeah. of God take care of them. I mean, that's that's part of the idea of these these Christians who are forming themselves as as communities. They, they see themselves as, as actually living in the real world they don't see themselves as separate from it but they're helping it's like a support group for living in the world yeah yeah and that makes all the difference because if you feel hung out to dry yeah whatever you know you've made a stand for something you've stood on the rock of jesus teachings and it's cost you something and that's you're right that makes a big difference if there's no one around you to say don't worry we would have done the same thing if we were you you know we're in it you know we'll help support you in other ways um, that makes a radical difference yeah. than if you're just kind of hung out to dry. You made a stand and no one's got your back. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a massive difference. You know, it's yeah. that sense of camaraderie. You see it even in um, you see it in sport and you see it in, you know, in um, areas in just kind of very superficial areas where, yeah. where you see, so literally where people have taken one for the team. Yes. Um, yeah. And and and. Even in, I know, you know, I'm talking to a pacifist here, so the analogy might break down a little bit. But even in war, where that kind of principle is no man gets left behind, you know, where where somebody's kind of taken a risk and, and then the rest of the people drag him back if he's shot or she's shot. Yeah. You know, kind yeah. of that sense of actually we're, we're part of this thing called the kingdom of God and we're going to take a hit. We are going to face the storms as yeah. interesting. This storm analogy comes up all the way. All yeah, the way right. Through. Yeah. When the storms because, come. When the storms come, how are you going to weather the storm? Yeah, right. And the foundation really point. is yeah. root ourselves in the right place. But we do that corporately. We are, we are on, we are on this rock. Yeah, called the teachings of Jesus, and this is how we're going to rebuild our lives. Having hit reset on our lives, yeah, we're going to rebuild our lives in this way. And if we're all stood on the rock, that means if one of us kind of slips off or we're getting a battering, we've got each other. You know, we've got we yeah. grab each yeah. other by the arms and pull them up and. Yeah. And it's exciting to to see that um, because that's again the analogy that we have here, isn't it? This the facing the storm, the floods, you know, all of these things in certainly New Testament language, and the audience would have heard that as being about chaos, or being but that which is out of their control. Um, yeah, right. That which yeah. was was terrifying, you know, the storm, you know, the the terror the disciples faced on the boat before Peter was asked to kind of come out and walk on the water. Yeah. The, that they want another boat and then Jesus is asleep. You know, the terror that, that actually the storms. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something there. Also the, uh, the idea further grist to your mill there, the idea that when he teaches with authority, there's sort of a sense here of he's speaking. Do you remember we talked about with Mark where he's like an agent of creation? Yeah. So he's yeah. not just like a clever guy. It's like he's speaking with the voice that created the world. Like that's right. the sort of idea here. It's like he's speaking not just to some uh, yet another teacher, not like you or I would teach. He's speaking like the person who invent 
It'd yeah. be a bit, a bit like, I don't know, you and, you and I just talking about how to use the internet. And then along comes the guy who invented the internet, right? <laughs> that guy, Tim Berners-Lee or whoever it is, is yeah. he's speaking with authority. He's like, all right, guys, let me tell you <laughs> what it was like when I made it, <laughs> yeah, right? right? And that's the kind of authority that Jesus is using here. So when you, when you talk about uh, the, the chaos of the wind and the waves, there is something in there bringing order out of chaos of uh of being uh, that genesis idea that the holy spirit is hovering over over yeah. chaos over the winds and the waves yeah. it's the same word when jesus did come the winds and the waves when he was on the boat it's the same yeah. word he had authority and they were yeah, a, exactly they're astounded yeah. that he had authority yeah. and that gives it's not just someone that speaks with wisdom or someone that you're like oh they're quite you know they know a bit more than me that yeah you're right that authority is like it's is reassuring yeah. And and has the has power behind it. That's why the word power is with authority alongside yeah. it. There's a power with Jesus' words. And, and the, yeah, and the rule of life that he's setting up, it's not this kind of theory of like, oh, maybe one it's not a utopia. He's not like looking forward to a future that hasn't happened yet. He's saying essentially like this is the way the world was meant to go. Or yeah. it when it was at its best, this was what we did. And um it's been corrupted, but this is this is a back to basics as it were kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if what Jesus is saying here or Matthew's commentary on Jesus teaching is that in the storms of life, if you want the power to calm the storms of life, you need to base your life on the teachings of Jesus. The kind of the authority of Jesus is, is by rooting yourself on the teachings, on his teachings. Yeah. I'll give you a foundation that will, that will not cause a frenzy or or fear or you know isn't it? and it's very human to fear that you feel those things to feel yeah. fearful or to feel, you know it's not to say that you're not a proper christian if you don't feel those things but the more that we ground our lives as we rebuild our lives out of covid or whatever it is on the teachings of jesus the less susceptible we are to the winds and the waves the buffets the fears the chaos because in those teachings there's the same authority that had enough authority to to stop the wind and the waves physically yeah you know that, that parallel is there yeah yeah i um, agree and well as we continue in these next sessions we will be looking in detail i guess at, at what some of those things look like what it looked like to be inside a house built on a rock when the storms are raging outside because a lot of the things that he talks about in this sermon are are actually how we live our lives in the face of storm yeah. You know, there's anger and issues of lust and forgiveness. I mean, those things only come about. They are like mini storms in our lives. Yeah. And um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Well, that's why I wanted to kind of give us an introduction to over uh, on this episode of Dig Deeper. It's good to be back, Stephen. I'm glad we have touched base. Um, but we wanted to begin with the end because it's all about the rebuilding. We've gone from reset to rebuild, and uh, and if we're gonna if we're gonna really want to rebuild, that passage that we just talked about gives us a reason to listen to Jesus' teaching in the first place. I love it. It's a good place to start. I like that. We started well, our sermon on the mount by looking at chapter four, which isn't the part of the sermon on the mount. <laughs> by looking at the end, which isn't also in the sermon on the mount. I love it. Right, and, and far be it from me to want to redact Matthew's order, but. Uh, uh, maybe that's the that's the um, the whim of the preacher, but uh, that's you're very postmodern. You've been brought up on modern film editing techniques. Quentin well, I'm, 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 
I, I'm going to stop short of deconstruction. So uh, <laughs> I'm hoping it's a bit of a reconstruction. I love um, it. Definitely. Thanks, John. Stephen, thank you. We'll see everyone. It's great to have you here. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. Thank you.